Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, we have a very special treat for you. But first, I want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon member, Lachlan. Thank you so much, Lachlan. We give a big shout out to anyone who becomes a member giving $25 or more per month over at Patreon. But you have various options of how much you can give. Lachlan will now have access to all kinds of anecdote compilations, bonus stories, check-ins. If you're wondering what a check-in is, you're about to find out on this episode. And it's super, super crucial for us going ahead into 2021. We're going to need every bit of help we possibly can to keep this running and get to the next whatever. day. <laughs> so visit us over at patreon.com slash risk. And don't remember, and do remember, <laughs> this is a, this open announcement is a shit show. It is a total shit show, my friends. No, if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Warren Wolf behind me now. And this episode is very special, very different from what you might be used to hearing. For one thing, you're going to hear the voices of various members of the Risk staff, some checking in about how they're doing now, some sharing audio clips from the past year and giving insight into how the show is made. And I will be dipping in and out through the whole thing, talking about my own perspectives on this era of the show. I often upload onto Patreon what we call check-ins, these sort of audio journals where I talk about how I'm doing, what's going on behind the scenes. And this week we got the idea that it might be fun to let people who are not members over at Patreon hear what one of these things sounds like. What happened was that yesterday, Tuesday, December 29th, John LaSala and Jeff Barr and I had our weekly meeting to discuss the production of the audio podcast. Jeff is the episode editor. John is one of our story editors, but we learned when he started working for us that he has an incredible skill at being one of those people who's really good at putting together checklists and schedules and systems for getting shit done. You know, in the time that I've been doing the podcast, I have learned, I've been diagnosed as having severe ADHD. And when you realize things like that about yourself, you realize, oh my gosh, I've got to team up with people whose brains work differently than mine. And I said to the guys, looking at them over Zoom, wow, I'm so sorry, guys. It's such a shame that this is the week between Christmas and New Year's and we can't take a week off, you know? We, 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 we've got to put out a new episode every week. There's a difference between us and a lot of typical narrative shows like This American Life or whatever. They will often take like three entire months off, but when you're in the free podcasting realm and you're an indie podcast, like, well, you feel like you have to be putting out new material every single week in order to compete because there are billions of podcasts now and most of them, most of the ones that get the most attention now are owned by major corporations. If you're indie, you really feel like, oh my gosh, in order to maintain an audience, we have got to come out with new material every week. And we are getting better. We are getting a lot better in the past year or two at preparing material in advance, but the episodes still do pretty much come together. You know, the final touches are put on an episode minutes before it goes online. I remember a couple of years ago talking to Brendan McDonald, who is the producer of WTF with Mark Marin, that podcast. And he was talking about how, oh yeah, we usually have about 15 or 20 episodes in the can and automatically scheduled to just boop, go online, you know, two months from now or whatnot. Of course, that's a very different kind of production. It's a conversation podcast. Anyway, I don't remember if it was me or John or Jeff who said it, but one of us said, wait a minute, why don't we, to some extent, take a week off? 
and just do one of these check-ins. Allow everyone to hear what they might be missing out on if they're not Patreon members, how we often do this behind-the-scenes chit-chat about how things are going. So I posted on the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, hey, does anyone have any questions? We can do some Q&A in this episode. And I also thought it would be fun to look back at some of the stories that made a big impression on me this past year. I also thought it would be fun to ask members of the staff if they had any memories from this incredibly unique year. So, in fact, we're going to try to get a lot of stuff in this episode while pretending it's taking a week off. <laughs> Another very typical ADHD trait is to think of different ways to do things and not take into account, oh yeah, that would also take a fuck ton of time and energy. But, come on, this year actually really does deserve a period of reflection at the end of it. If I'm to be really honest about what 2020 was like for me, I feel like I have to go back a, a couple of years. Because 2018 was maybe Risk's best year. We were turning nine years old, which is, a, you know, a really an impressive amount of time for a podcast to have lasted, an independent one. And that was the year that we put out the Risk book, which was such an exciting project to work on. And our series over at Amazon, five hour-long stories on Kindle and audiobook. And that was the year that five different television networks wanted to hear a pitch for a Risk TV show from us. So it was very exciting. And for the first time in the history of this podcast, I had a little extra money. Now I have a bad, bad, bad behavioral habit, which is getting to a certain level of success with something and assuming the trajectory will just continue that way. In my 20s, I did that with the state. Once the state was actually making a little bit of, you know, decent money, I was not saving it because I was assuming that there was so much more that we were just going to continue making. Did a very similar thing in 2018. Was not super careful with that money. And then 2019 came around. The Risk book did not get the press that we had hoped. It did not sell like we had hoped. Our publisher did not want another one like we had hoped. Now, it's still a phenomenal book. <laughs> it is still out there, and it's still wonderful, and it still deserves to sell a bazillion copies and wake our publisher up and make them think, holy shit, yeah, we do want another book from you guys. But um, but it wasn't the initial success that we had hoped, and none of those TV networks ended up interested in our particular idea at that time for a TV sort of thing. We can say that we now have a very different idea for a show, but anyway, at that time, it was a, it was kind of crushing, and we also realized we were having a bad year financially. We were having like the first time where we weren't making more than the year before, and we were celebrating our 10th anniversary. So 
here's the thing about me. It's not just the ADHD that I contend with, but also anxiety and depression. And I'm a storyteller. And all of us use storytelling on ourselves. We tell ourselves stories about Oh, I'm a loser. Oh, I'm winning. Oh, you know, I'm a victim. Oh, I'm a hero. Whatever it might be, it's very easy for me to fall into that depressive, melancholic sort of storytelling. And that year, 2019, when we were turning 10, I was like, oh my God, I spent so much time looking forward to being able to say, my podcast is 10 years old. We made it, you know? But felt all these things were happening in 2019 that were showing that we might be on a downward trajectory. So I think the lesson of 2020 for me and for risk and, you know, our whole team is that you never know from the place in history where you are, what possibilities lie around the corner. You really, really can't know. And so no matter how bad you currently think you have it, you have to cling to what you are grateful for. You have to really put up on a pedestal in your mind and your heart what you are grateful for. Because in 2020, we damn near lost this business, you know? Our problems in 2020, our crises in 2020, made 2019 <laughs> look like a cakewalk. And so now, at the end of 2020, what is my attitude? It's the attitude that I should have had during our 10th anniversary. It's, holy fucking shit, we made it. <laughs> Listen, I mean, we're... Believe me, we have, we still have lots of problems. You are not going to stop hearing us begging for more of you to become patrons over at Patreon. But fucking hell, we made it. And when we look back at this year, there's so much to be grateful that we accomplished. This was an extraordinary year for content on the show. And that's what I thought it would be fun to look back on during this episode. This is JC Cassis, the producer and business manager of Risk. Um, as we reflect on the insane year that was 2020, I think one of the most important things we can do is find the silver linings and the good parts. Oh, uh, hopefully that person who just crashed outside my window is okay. <laughs> 2020. Um, I think it's very, very important to find the silver linings and the good parts because they were there amidst the total chaos. So as I look back on this most tumultuous and precarious and terrifying year of our existence in terms of a, being a, an independent podcast and business that could have absolutely gone under very easily in 2020, um, some of the bright spots that I can think of are, first and foremost, the way our team stepped up to this challenge that was really unlike any challenge we'd ever faced before. Um, we were kind of simultaneously facing the challenge of how do we survive without live shows? Okay, how do we move our live shows online? Okay, how do we um, 
figure out how we're going to make it through with half our regular income. Okay, how do we get a government loan? How do we bring our storytelling classes online? How do we convince clients to do storytelling workshops online? And how can we be there for each other through this panic and this terror of illness and financial ruin and all this kind of stuff? And just time and time again, our team stepped up to the challenge. I remember in the very beginning um, talking to Cindy Freeman, um, who casts and coaches our a lot of our storytellers for shows and the podcast, just talking with her and saying, okay, we're going to find a way forward. We're going to find a way to bring these shows online and kind of feeling a little bit excited because, of course, at that time, we thought maybe it would be four weeks instead of the rest of our lives. And just feeling like, okay, we're in this together and we're going to figure out a way forward. And then I think another little bright spot was our first live online show, which I think like 350 people bought tickets for. And just the excitement of when people, when fans started showing up in the chat, just being like, woohoo, I'm seeing Kevin live. Like I live in some very remote place and I would never be able to do this. Or I live halfway across the world and I would never be able to come to a risk show. Or, you know, I'm physically disabled and this is so much easier to attend than a, a live show at a venue that's not very easily accessible. Or, you know... I have little kids and instead of having to hire a babysitter and drive two hours into a city and find parking and do this and that, I can just pop into the show like I'm so excited. And there was such a sense of goodwill and just being amped up about this new thing we were doing. So that was definitely a really bright spot. And then another bright spot was definitely when we found out that we were going to be in the New York Times and just waiting for that article to go live and then seeing it, you know, on the New York Times and just being so excited and seeing it in print and finally feeling like, wow, we are finally getting a chance to be in some of the publications that we feel like we should have been in all along, but um, haven't been thus far. Um So those are some of the bright spots. And of course, obviously, I don't have to highlight how it was an incredibly difficult year as well. We were all there for all of that. Um, But the other amazing thing was the way that you fans stepped up and helped us survive this time. Um, Our Patreon funding doubled this year, which is just incredible. Um, You guys really answered the call to help us financially survive a time that we absolutely could have not survived. Um, So yeah, I just really want to deeply thank you all and really let you know that your support and your listening and you're telling people about the show and you're sending in Patreon donations and you're buying tickets to the live shows. It really does make the difference between whether we exist or don't exist. So thank you all for seeing us through the scariest year of our lives. Um, There was a time in like April and May where... I kind of ran the numbers and realized like, wow, like if we don't get some kind of emergency funding, we will have to close our doors after 11 years. Um, There were no two ways about it. Either we would have to not pay anybody anything for however long it took to start making money again, or we would have to just stop doing this. And luckily, uh, a government loan saved our lives. And uh And you guys did too. So I just want to thank you all for stepping up. Um, Keeping this show going is really a team effort in terms of the people who work on the show and and really all the people who listen to the show. So thank you all so much for getting us through this worst of years. And um, we look forward to continuing to make it through 2021 and hopefully seeing you guys live again when that is possible and safe very soon. So we hope that we can continue to be a light in all of your lives the same way that you are in ours. So thank you. And here's to a much better 2021 for everybody.
beginning of 2020 was a lot of fun. We went out and did our annual trip to San Francisco Sketchfest. My sex and romance life at that time was rip roaring. <laughs> I had gotten to, to the point in, in the history of touring, you know, we go to many of these cities once a year and some every other year and had friends with benefits in these towns, you know? I mean, it was fun to come back to a place like San Francisco every year. Um, and I had a couple of uh, lovers back at home in New York. So it, that part of my life was very fun and exciting at that time. I remember something I was proud of doing at the beginning of the year on the podcast, which is that some you might not notice this, but sometimes we'll have one kind of story that presents one type of a point of view about some subject. And then the following week or a couple weeks later, we might feature a very different perspective on a similar thing happening in order to kind of emphasize that you, the listener, might think, oh, here's how I would react if such and such a thing happened to me. But you really can't know how someone from different circumstances and a different life history, who has a different soul, how it might land for them. So James Cox told this phenomenal story called Mother Lovin' in an episode in late January of 2020. James told this at an evening of the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon, one of our favorite shows, about how when he was in high school, he had a sexual relationship with one of his high school friend's mom. So, you know, very, very illegal what's happening there for very good reasons. However, James's perspective on having been under the age of consent and officially statutorily raped by this woman, James's feelings, his experience, his interpretation of his life experience, uh, he looked back at all that with very positive feelings. Eventually, standing in front of my mom and dad, I said that I got picked up after work on Friday and spent the weekend in bed with a beautiful older woman. The cops didn't believe me. <laughs> One of them got up in my face and said, now, James, during your ordeal, <laughs> did you feel coerced or held against your will, threatened or assaulted in any way? And I burst out laughing right in his face. It's like, against my will, coerced, are you out of your mind? I had just gotten the most incredible education on sexual integration personal awakening and joy that anybody has ever received. Mary didn't just fuck my brains out. She fucked my shame out. She opened for me the door to a lifetime of joy and sex. And Mary, if you're out there anywhere, I just want to say thank you. I owe you so much. So I made a point of putting on the following episode the story that Lisa X shared about also being a teenager 
And having these circumstances where her uncle would pay her for sexual favors and uh, how she dealt with how traumatizing that was for her. I stopped because it felt wrong. Intellectually, I didn't know why it felt wrong. I didn't have the knowledge at the time to put those kinds of thoughts together. And I didn't have any words for it. And for years, I would blame myself for this thing that happened, this thing that I participated in. And I would get into these fits of depression and rage. Four years later, when I was in college, I was having one of these fits of depression and just rage and anger and I was in the shower and I was scratching and I was scrubbing and I was punching the wall and a friend of mine came into the bathroom and she realized that it was me and she asked me what was going on. I just broke down. So that's an example of how I normally don't prefer to comment all that much on the stories. You know, there are some shows where it kind of feels like the producer is telling you how to feel. And I tend to want to just let the storyteller present to you, express to you as best they can how they really feel, how they interpret their life experiences. And you make of it what you will. So people will often email me and say something like, Kevin Allison, you are such a racist for allowing such and such a person to have said such and such a thing on your show, or you're such a misogynist, or you're such a a transphobe, or whatever the thing might be, and I'll always wonder, did this person listen to just one story? Because I tend to think of Risk as like a tapestry of stories you know, around about 1,700 stories now, you know? I like to think of it as this 11-year process of letting a whole lot of voices share about often contradictory points of view. Hi, this is John LaSala. I'm one of the editors for Risk, and I do a bunch of other behind-the-scenes things for the show, including working with each storyteller for our live stream shows to get them looking and sounding their best for you all watching all over the world. But primarily, I'm an editor and sound designer. I'm a musician, a composer. And so my favorite thing to do for Risk is working with music and sound effects to bring stories to life, to bring out and support the dramatic thrust or heighten the emotion of a story. And lucky for me, we have had many stories with music on Risk this year, due in part to the fact that at the beginning of 2020, we started doing these little anecdote mini stories to offset the sort of giant epics we also do. And I love those. I really love those. And one of my favorite ones ever was actually from this year too. But... I just want to do a quick review of some of my favorite moments from these anecdotes that I've been involved with this past year. Let's start with Closed for the Duration by Kevin Ball. Now, this was a kind of a sequel to an earlier, very popular story he had done a couple years earlier called Snow Globe. This one also takes place 
at the Brooklyn Inn, where he's a bartender. But now in the time of COVID, things are a little different. The Brooklyn Inn has been my home for the last 14 years. It is the most beautiful bar. It's a bar where, during a blizzard, a woman can appear out of nowhere, and you find yourself dancing with her. I take her hand, warm in mine, and we start to dance. And the snow is falling outside the giant windows. The sparkles in her eyes and her smile melts my heart. And that last bit you heard that was sort of echoey and swimming around was an excerpt from the original story, Snow Globe, embedded within this story, closed for the duration. Kind of taking us back to those happier times. Now, just a couple months ago, we had a short story from Michael Shibley called It Must Be Nice. And this was on Kevin's recommendation to use the Black Eyed Peas song, Be Nice, along with Patrick Swayze's speech from the movie Roadhouse, as suggested by the story Michael told. Here's how the end of that went. Inside their head. It must be nice not to care if they get their loved ones sick and they end up dying. It must be nice. nice. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. And three, be nice. If somebody gets in your face and calls you a cocksucker, I want you to be nice. Okay. Ask him to walk. Be nice. I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. And do you remember Jay Carpenter's dad getting struck by lightning and the doors in the story White Light? This light that just takes the whole world away and you know the light fades and then I hear from the living room my father's voice going now the legendary film composer Ennio Morricone died this year I had the opportunity to use some of his music for two different stories recently one before he died one shortly after he died The first is from Walter Zimmerman in a story called How Life Is. So we were sharing the story and not thinking anything more of it until one day we came into the house and my father, a silent man, was sitting in the living room with a black binder on his lap. Did one of you boys take something from this book? That was his very sinister score from the 1990 movie Hamlet. But the next one I did with Morricone music was in one of my favorites this year, Cheddar, also known as Cheese Baby. Time had no meaning to me anymore. Time must have passed. I have no idea how much. 20 minutes, maybe it was three hours, uh, I'm not sure. 
But eventually I must have finished because I remember crying tears of joy or tears of pain. I'm not sure which. That, of course, was from the also legendary Once Upon a Time in the West. Now, two more of my favorite moments are from the very recent holiday season. First is from Vin Brew's Elf on the Mother Effin' Shelf, right when Vin's nephew discovers what has happened to Dingle. And I watched as my eight-year-old nephew's face turned from excitement to horror as he yelled out, Dingle! No! And that's when I smelled the burning. Yep. Do you hear his nephew yelling, No! in the background? That's actually an echo of Vin saying it just pitched up and it just sounds right. Now, a lot of people don't hear these because it's for Patreon members only, but we do these little compilations of these anecdotes that are sent in but don't make it to the podcast for one reason or another. And there was this one tiny moment from a story called The Santa Game by Melissa Reeves that happens right towards the end. It's just this tiny little moment, and it's one of my favorite little things. (sighs) This tsunami of shame just pounds upon my guilted shoulders. She's right. She's right. I have been lying to her. And by the way, the compilation that story is from is currently free on Patreon. So go over to our Patreon page and check it out. Hey, remember when I said I'm also a composer? Well, I've written some of the music behind some of these anecdotes, particularly earlier in the year, not so much recently. Nothing flashy, usually just a background mood-setting kind of thing. The first is behind a story by Wanda Wilson-Bowser, the second behind Ryan Estrada. And I can't believe that this situation escalated because she didn't want to do her chores. I was about to give her my own mom spiel about everyone in a family pitching in when the red SUV that stopped me initially pulls up. I get really anxious because I don't fully know the situation and she might still be in trouble. So when the woman comes out of the passenger seat of the SUV and says to me, oh, thank God you found her. The next half hour was hot. I was sweating so much that my clothes were just drenched. And then I had to fart. This next one really needs no introduction. It is the wildly popular Among Risk fans, me and my fam. If you haven't heard it yet, you really have to check out Best of Risk number 19. But for now, here's how that story starts. Check out the sort of dreamy music I wrote for the legendary Me and My Fam. So I'm walking down the street and uh, there's a medium amount of people and I see this adorable gentleman, older than me, shorter than me, looking at me and approaching me. One final clip I want to play. This is stepping outside of the realm of the anecdotes and into the radio stories proper. This is from Erica Blumfield's Life in Transition, a story about Erica's struggles with bipolar disorder. And I just want to highlight probably my favorite scene from that whole story, where she experiences this sort of magical high of a manic episode. Like one night, I walked along the edge of a bridge that led from Greenpoint, where I lived, into Queens. 
at first it felt like a euphoria that I imagine people only feel on drugs. It's exquisite. You see in Technicolor, everything tastes extraordinary, smells extraordinary. You can go to a museum and stand in front of a picture and feel as though you are inside of it. You are the brush strokes. It only exists because you are there. I would go to the Met and I would stand before my favorite painting, Salome, and it glowed. It was as though it was made for me. Your emotions are so on the surface and you take everything in. You're this vessel or, or you know, you just, everything is sensory. You have a flight of ideas that I would make millions on Shark Tank if I could remember any of them. <laughs> and that is mostly music from the prelude to Bernard Herrmann's score for Vertigo. But you know, these things aren't made in a vacuum. I don't do these things myself. There's a lot of back and forth and collaboration between me and Kevin and Jeff Barr. So thanks, guys. And here's hoping we get to do a lot more interesting stuff like that in 2021. Thanks for listening, Risk fans. This is Risk. This is Warren Wolf behind me again. I hope you're enjoying this special episode. There's more audio journaling and recorded conversations with both staff and storytellers as bonus content, along with all the bonus stories, over at patreon.com slash risk. But also I, Kevin, am thinking of maybe starting a whole new podcast sometime in the next year or two that would mostly be audio journaling and conversations about all kinds of things. That's why I'd be super curious to hear how you guys feel about this episode. If you have any constructive criticism or complaints or insights or whatnot, the best place to do that is over at the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook, or you can just email me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess 
whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, just before the pandemic hit, uh, a couple more nice things happened. I celebrated turning 50. I had spent all of my 49th year with my therapist preparing for entering my 50s and then later, within weeks of turning 50, realized nothing could have prepared me for what my 50th year was like. But then we also introduced something brand new right before the pandemic hit, these anecdotes, these little radio anecdotes, these stories that are like anywhere from three and a half to at the most five minutes long. And they're delightful because they, you know, uh, mix things up a little bit. You know, it's nice to have a short story after a long one. But also, so many risk listeners feel like, oh gosh, I, I don't know if I have the time or, or I got to take a workshop first before I'm ready to tell like a 20-minute story that's a big, long journey. But they think, oh my God, but there was that one little incident I could talk about for four minutes. And I've just been thrilled with how these have come out. This one came to us from Pete Brown, and it was especially intimate. It's just after midnight. I'm in a nursing home in Cleveland, Ohio at the bedside of my 94-year-old father who is dying. You can probably hear him breathing here in the background. He's not dying from coronavirus, by the way. He's got end-stage congestive heart failure and bad timing, I guess. But we're at the part of his care where we're just trying to keep him comfortable. Then it was March 2020, and one of my two romantic relationships in New York fell to pieces. And then I flew out to Reno, Nevada to do the Risk Live show there on March 13th. One of the things about being an American 
is there are so many different kinds of people in this country in so many different kinds of circumstances that it's very easy to read about things in the news or hear about things happening in certain circles and not really put together that the ripples and tides of those things could come into your life. So, for example, you know, one of the fellows I was dating in February uh, was Chinese and was extremely distraught about his family overseas. And so I was trying to be consoling and supportive about all that, not realizing it was already here, you know, not realizing, oh, shit, that's our circumstance in just a little bit here. So I show up in Reno to do a big risk show there. And Steve Emmerich was uh, the producer who was so emotional at that time because he had worked so hard for so many years to bring us back out there to Reno. But when he was driving me from the airport to my hotel room, we were both anxious wrecks. We were like, what are we doing? What should we do? I was obsessively watching the news, obsessively washing my hands, obsessing over whether or not my plane might not go back to New York City. And then on March 13th, the day we were supposed to do the show, uh, Broadway was shut down. And that was, that was it. That was a signal to all live theater in the country. Shut it down. Brad Lawrence and, and I'm Cindy Freeman and we are uh, a couple of the story coaches for Risk and Teachers for the Story Studio and uh, a married we are the married couple. We are we are staff. social distancing. We are inches away from each other. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Kevin wanted us to so okay our favorite moments from the from the from 2020 from this very weird <laughs> wrong year. Oh my god, I am just so grateful to work for Kevin and JC and work with the Risk and Story Studio team, the instructors, the coaches, the the engineers, the everybody. Just, yeah, and I'm just oh I'm just God. glad that we were able to keep the show going and pivot the way we did into this new reality. I think it was you know, it was such a, it was a really uh, a blessing to be able to keep this all going. Yeah, and I I think that when I'm looking at, you know, what are the memories that I'm going to keep from this year, my the most vivid one for me is that first show that we went on to Zoom, and it had been the New York cast. It was March 26, and, and rather than be at Caveat, we were in our bedroom um, <laughs> with our computer, and I just remember watching the numbers grow as our fans came in, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then Everybody brought it. Um, I remember Gail Thomas being in her closet for the for the sound quality and just you know <laughs> watching her coats behind her, but she sounded great. And of course, she's a wonderful storyteller. But yeah, just and it was kind of the first thing that made 
the new reality funny at all. Yeah, I think it was like, hi, this is Gail Thomas from my closet. Yeah. 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 But it's just... Surrounded by all these coats looming over her. It was great. (laughs) It was was more that, like, I knew we were going to be okay. When I saw that, and I saw Kevin, and I saw JC, and I saw the cast, and I saw how good it was... Um, and it just also at that point I'd felt so isolated and I just knew we're going to make this work this is going to be okay right if, well, if you're going to start at the beginning, I'm going to go right to the end, mm-hmm. uh, because one thing that's been happening at the end of the year here is that we have been getting so many people coming in, uh, emailing us and you know, sending messages to the show talking about how mm-hmm. the stuff we've put out over the year has sort of gotten them through. It's sort of given them a sense of continuity and community and a place to escape and feel inspired, uh, not just from risk, not just from the you know continuation of the show and the live shows online, but also the the webinars that we've been putting out the story studio, mm-hmm. which has uh, we've gotten a lot of messages from people who you know like that has been a way for them to feel like, you know, connected to a craft that means so much to them and staying inspired and staying motivated Mm -hmm. uh, to keep going. Yeah, and the storytelling for building connection and storytelling for job interviews. And you did an amazing one, which I think is my favorite, which is uh, how to tell stories when you are the villain. Which I think, you know, it's one of those things where nobody wants to be forced to innovate quite this way, but there are innovations that come out of these kinds of times. And one of them has been the opportunity to dive deep on areas of storytelling that we didn't, you know, we've, we've often talked about wanting to break down some of these, you know, corners of the storytelling craft and create content around those things, mm. like how to tell a story when you're a villain, yeah. uh, and just haven't had the opportunity to do it. But but this, because there was a need and because, you know, you want to be able to reach out to people and give them something to, you know, make all of this you know, uh, feel better and be at least feel inspiring, and and putting that kind of stuff out and breaking down into those into those small areas where people can come and get something unique mm-hmm. and sign a point of view that they're not going to get anywhere else, and half the time getting it for free. Mm-hmm. I think that's been yeah. it's been a blessing to do. It's been a blessing to like be able to be that productive and have that kind of opportunity to dive deep but i think from the from the emails we've gotten mm. uh which always just it warms every little last part of me to to find out that you're putting that stuff out and people need it and they want it and it's and it's doing them good yeah i had a conversation on the phone with um somebody who's been on risk before was uh, just coaching him on a story and he just ended it by saying how grateful he was for the webinars for risk itself for the classes for he he just said between risk and story studio we have been the go-to when he needs to feel connected when he needs to feel inspired he knows that he can find that with us and uh, i know that there's parts of this that will continue on like the open mic we've always wanted to do an open mic and we weren't able to find a venue um and zoom is the perfect venue because now we have people not just from new york but people from you know across not just the country but we have people coming in from other countries and so you know this hasn't been a great year uh but there has been innovation that i think we're going to take with us um and I think we're going to be uh, better for it. Yeah. And hopefully next year, this year we, will, we will see uh, you guys live and in person. Uh, but maybe we'll continue to do some of the online stuff as well and see that way as uh, too. So that'll be something good to come out of all of this. That indeed. Um, but Happy New Year, you all. Thank you, Riz. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, JC. And 
here's to a better 2021. Happy New Year, everybody. JC and I went through a really crazy period in the end of March and into April. If you don't know, JC and I are kind of like the two leaders of this whole venture. I am the creative director of all of this, and she is the business director of all of this. When the podcast was maybe not yet two years old, I put out a call on the podcast itself saying, hey, look, I realize I don't have the kind of brain to run a business, you know, to keep track of all of the money and all of the systems and even just make sure that emails are coming in and getting read and being responded to within a 24-hour basis. And so JC came in in whatever it was, 2012 or something like that, and looked at my email box and was just like, holy shit. You know, she got a really, really good snapshot of my ADHD when she looked at my email inbox and she was like, yeah, okay. Like the first gigantic project she took on was going back through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails from the first couple years of the show and sorting things out and starting to create systems and things. So what we do is Monday through Thursday, we meet first thing in the morning on Skype. We can't see each other. We can hear each other. And we often will have an emotional check-in for 10, 20 minutes at the beginning, which is the same thing I proposed that the state, my old sketch comedy group, do when we started our work day at MTV. I just, I like for people to be able to emotionally check in <laughs> whenever they're going to be working together. Um, and then we dive into emails together. She'll say, I'll take this one, you take that one. Don't miss this one. Okay, that one's responded to, but you need to add something at the end here, et cetera, et cetera. So end of March and through April, she used to just check in with me every morning and say, okay, our advertisers are fleeing. <laughs> and the ones that we've had long-term relationships with who want to stay, they want to know if they can pay us uh, just a little bit of what they used to pay us, you know? And oh my gosh, uh, our corporate workshops over at the Story Studio, people are canceling those because, you know, there was just so much uncertainty. It's kind of ironic because those workshops are ideal for the staffs of businesses to feel more connected, to boost morale, to give everyone like a shot in the arm inspiration about, okay, now we have a more concrete, tangible grasp on our why, what what it is, what, what our purpose is here, and how we're going to communicate that together. So, you know, it's very painful to see you're losing money, but you still have this thing to offer that in fact would be perfect timing right now for people to be taking advantage of this. You know what I mean? Because it's so helpful, especially after or during rocky times for your business. And there was the loss of doing the live shows, another important part of our income stream. But also 
the loss of that content, like immediately we were like, oh man, does anything compare to the sound of live theater happening in a theater, right? You know, I remember this was the year that we premiered that story by Shiny that was such a huge hit at the show that we did in Austin just a few months prior to all this craziness. We down a shit ton of mimosas. And we sit down around this table and we're making terrible, terrible jokes to kill the creep vibe that is just hanging heavy in the air. Because you're told all your life, like, only psychopaths go out and eat people. You know, here we are. And so there's the inevitable, I have to stand up in front of them and say, take this, this is my body. I have a friend who says, this is the first time you've been in 10 people at once. But then something genuinely remarkable happened. It started with JC. JC went bonkers (laughs) in mid-March. She dove in and was working way, 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 way over time, working night and day to figure out how to save the business. The first thing is, JC determined we have to get a live stream show online as soon as possible before anyone was really talking about that. I mean, everyone was doing it, you know, within a month from then, but JC had our first risk live stream show on March 26, it wasn't even two weeks from our canceled Reno show. The first email sent out to you know the cast and the staff as to how this show was gonna work is a novel. It just goes on and on. JC had been doing so much research to figure out, well, okay, how does Zoom work? Should we have this kind of account or that kind of account? Talking with John LaSalle about, oh my God, how do we make sure that everyone's got decent enough sound quality, both for the show and for recording the damn thing for the podcast? We were, Cindy Freeman was, uh, jumped into action, getting everyone on the cast ready and taking a look at, we want to make sure that your image looks good, that you're you're well lit and that you know there's not too much clutter in the frame and all these things it was a real concerted team effort to reinvent the show i was so thrilled that david crab and michelle walson were all the way on board for starting to coach people you know more people more stories because we thought we could do this every week maybe and then Chris Gersbeck sent out a press release to the New York Times and Jason Zinneman of the New York Times was like holy shit this little podcast is showing the way and he got me GC and I on on Skype and interviewed us and we were in the New York Times and I'll tell you I I couldn't I couldn't get to sleep that night that we did that first show. I was just so amped up by how excited I was because, you know, listen, in those couple of weeks, we were afraid to go outside at all to, you know, to step out and grab the mail out of the mailbox. Because, you know, 
it's important to try to remember the step by step the way things were always changing. But I'll tell you something, you know, in, in March and April in New York City, it was terrifying. You got to remember, we know so much more about this virus now, but are a little uh, desensitized because, you know, you learn something one week and a couple weeks later, a little bit more, a couple weeks later, a little bit more. But back then it was such a big mystery that we were super hunkered down and it was just a real release that first show to be seeing one another in our apartments, connecting and sharing these stories. Felicia O'Hara was the very first live stream story that we ever shared on the podcast, and her story was shared in the first live stream show about how her daughter's near death a few years prior had reminded her how important it is to keep things going when you're thrown a curveball. So I ask him, I say, did her heart stop? And he says... Yes. And he looks at my Cubs t-shirt and, and I look at his Mets lanyard and, and then I ask, did the Cubs lose? <laughs> and he says, yes. With like the same sympathetic inflection as the death question. <laughs> and we just start laughing, the two of us. And like the whole hospital is like looking at us. We're like cry laughing, sweat laughing. I think I might have hugged him because like it was the best laughter I had felt all season. Like it was such a relief. And so I said, thank you. Your team deserves the win. And... Uh, as many of you probably know, the Cubs recovered and they won the World Series the next year in 2016. And Lena also recovered. Um, she is no longer immunocompromised, thank goodness, and uh, is one of the most energetic and lively seven-year-olds I think that most people have met. My dad got to see um, the Cubs win in 2016 as well, and I think he's getting to see me here on Zoom tonight from Chicago. And uh, I, you know, until two weeks ago, I thought that this experience was a reminder, like for me to like not participate in silly rituals and superstitions. But, um, you know, I'm telling this story on what was supposed to be the opening day of baseball season today. And I realized, of course, that this is a reminder that, you know, these rituals uh, these games, these parades, these traditions, like no matter how silly, this is what connects us and what comforts us and what keeps us going. And we have to keep the rituals going. And thank you for letting me tell this story to keep this ritual going. Good night. <laughs> I promised I'd do a little Q&A, some of these questions that fans asked on the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. Let me start with Wanda Wilson-Bowser, who has been on the show before. Wanda said, I'd be interested in knowing how many story submissions y'all get and what gets a yay or a nay or an on the fence. We've never measured that. I, you know, I would say if we wanted to, we could probably figure out around about how many pitches we get per month, around about how many per year. Brad and Cindy, Brad Lawrence and Cindy Freeman, 
oversee the email address pitches at risk-show.com. So they're the first eyes on any pitch, although some people do pitch me directly at kevin at risk-show.com, but I almost always share those with Brad and Cindy so that they are keeping track of everything. Some of the things that affect yay or nay for us are, have we heard this story dozens of times before? Or is the person who's telling the story, is their personality unique some way or their circumstances unique in some way? Is there some twist in the way the events go that we don't feel like we've seen before? So, of course, there are types of things that happen in risk stories, like someone has a breakthrough BDSM experience or someone gets out of an abusive relationship or, you know, these things that, you know, there are kind of recurring motifs, right, across the history of the show. So when that happens, then we consider, oh, but wait, this person uh, grew up very poor and is not college educated. So, hey, we're going to get a different perspective from this person because of differing life experiences than the previous person who told a story about fairly similar events might have had. A lot of people assume that their story has to be very high stakes, and that's true to an extent, but not the way you might think. For example, we don't need for there to be life or death stakes in the story. Your story doesn't have to be about falling off of Mount Everest or being attacked by sharks in the ocean or something. The stakes are, were you really emotionally jarred or invested in what happened? You know, did this mean the world to you at the time? For example, one of the earliest stories that was ever on the podcast was a gal who wanted to tell about how when she was a kid, when she was a teenager, she had terrible social anxiety. She didn't say anything to any of her classmates all year long. Then on the last day of class, they did a game of charades in her homeroom class. And that was terrifying for her to have to participate in a game of charades. I loved it. I'm like, that's what I mean. Like, objectively, a game of charades is very, very, very low stakes. But to her... It was terrifying, so I want to hear about that. I'm going to care because she cared so much. Now, oftentimes, someone will pitch a story to the show, but they're, they have some obstacles to deal with in terms of their psychological health, their mental health and all. Maybe they have PTSD. Maybe they have even worse ADHD than I do. Um, Asperger's, whatever it might be, we will try to ascertain oh, uh, how can we work with this person? Sometimes with PTSD folks, we have to ascertain, is this person really ready? Have they really processed this? And as strange as this might sound for me to say, there, there is a percentage of people out there who are sociopaths or, or psychopaths. I feel like I can say this. There was a fella named Michael Alleg. There was a movie made about him called Party Monster. He was very well known in New York City in gay circles in the 90s when I was coming up. He was a club kid who did something absolutely horrifying. He murdered one of his friends, Angel Melendez, I think was his name, Uh, chopped him up, I think threw him in the river, and then went to prison for 25 years or something like that. 
But when he came out of prison, he wanted to rehabilitate his reputation. And I don't know if it was him or a quote-unquote publicist contacted us saying, Michael wants to tell his story. Can he get on the phone with Kevin? I got on the phone with him, and this conversation was over an hour long. He wanted to tell the story of how in the last year or two of being in prison, he had kicked heroin. And there was going to be some some mention of the murder and stuff like that in there as well, but uh, he really wanted the focus to be on how he'd made good, how he had turned it all around. And in talking to him on the phone, I told him things that I tell storytellers all the time, that we very much welcome stories where the storyteller is the bad guy, where they are owning up. Like if you were in a 12-step program and you were taking an inventory of, let, let's walk through this. I, I, I want to talk about my mixed feelings. I want to talk about what the angel in my head was saying, what the devil in my head was saying, and how... I saw myself making a mess and how I see myself now trying to clean up that mess. But that is just not the heart and soul, you know, that I heard in the voice coming out of the phone at me. You know, you can hear it in the tone. You can hear whether someone is really listening and resonating with, with the emotional vibe you're offering toward them, you know, but no, he was determined to create a promotional piece and repair his reputation. You know, the one thing we're always coaching people about with risk stories is to take us into very specific moments, the most intense moments, and really show us all the sensory detail you can possibly remember. The look in someone's eye, the little way that some feeling trickled through your abdomen, the smell of someone's breath, uh, the way that the sunlight was coming in through the window and, and kind of playing with the smile on someone's face. You know, all these very, very scenic details, the taste in your mouth, the voice in your head that you heard in that moment before you said something and the way you said it and the way that the person made a sound reacting to you. When you ask someone to get that nitty gritty about you know, the moment-to-moment -moment reality they lived through. <laughs> it starts to get really intimate, and it starts to get difficult for a person to fudge. <laughs> it starts to get really real. I kept interrupting him and pushing for that kind of thing, especially about the most warts-and-all-feeling part of the story, and he was just not having it. So that was, I don't know, maybe 2014 or 15 roundabout when this was happening. And then on Christmas Day, just a few days ago before I'm recording this, he, uh, he died of a heroin overdose. You know, we're never interested in something for shock value. What we're looking for is that... A person is sharing 
from a place where they feel like other people might hear this and grow from hearing it. I guess it's just an indefinable thing that you can feel out whether or not that's the vibe you're getting from a person. I've always wanted to have more on the show. Stories by people from really vulnerable situations. People who have struggled with poverty. People who have faced real injustice. People who have um, been imprisoned or homeless or you know, whatever it might be. And the reason it's a little bit of a struggle there for us is because, you know, we have so little resources. We don't have the kind of funding and the sort of, you know, uh, human resources, like being able to have full-time employees going out and, and connecting with, say, social services sorts of organizations. Because someone who is not college educated and or these other stereotypical things that you're bound to have among people coming on to storytelling shows they're going to be a lot harder to coach it's going to take a lot more work and it's going to take a long time getting that person to trust you i hope someday in the future we can feature more and more and more of those kinds of stories Hey guys, this is Jeff Barr. I'm the episode editor of Risk, and Kevin told me that in the Risk Q&A over at Facebook, Risk fan John Helton said he wanted to know how one of our audio interstitials came together. Now, it's not an easy question to answer because it's always something different. Sometimes it's just a collection of movie quotes. Sometimes it's a mashup of music. Sometimes it features samples from a story, like in this interstitial featuring Tyson Purcell's character of Fen Fitzroberts. Good evening, Jack, Susie, Susie, Susie. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. I see you've got to put your beer there. I'd love it if you'd tell me a point. You know, Jack, I've invested quite a lot of money. I gave you a bunch of money. I've been needing it back tonight. Ben, I don't have the money, you know money, you know money, you know money, you know money, Or taking a song and altering the lyrics to fit a story, as I did here with Nine Inch Nails following a story by Keisha Zoller, where she was once instructed by a couples therapist to have sex with other people. Have sex with other people. What is this, some kind of one-night stand? You should go out and have sex with someone else. For 14 hours. Someone else. And sometimes, if I'm really stuck and I just can't find something that will work, I end up writing and singing lyrics myself to suit the mood, as I did here in Kevin's favorite interstitial of last season, which featured Mohab Skit's story of a special arrangement he had with a friend 
who was willing to trade transportation for custom refreshments. Hey there, I got a favor I need to ask. I got no way to get to school. No problem, that's not out of my way. But still, I'd like a favor back from you. You name it, what do you need? I appreciate that you're helping me. Now don't laugh, consider this carefully. Could I get a bottle of your pee? No, wait, you want my pee? Not a lot, just a mug or three. Okay, and you'll give me a ride? Hmm, so long as you keep me well supplied. My pee? Yes. Why? Thirsty. Oh, wouldn't you rather have something else to drink? Mm -mm. Gatorade? No. Minute Maid? Nah. Coca-Cola, coffee, milk, or tea? No, just your pee. Now, I know you're a good friend to me. That's right. I'm flattered, or at least I think I ought to be. Sure. And my other options are looking pretty bleak. So, do we have a deal? I need a drink. No asparagus, please. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And although sometimes the mood of 2020 could zap my creativity altogether, I'm very optimistic for 2021 and the future of Risk. Happy New Year, everyone, and please tell everyone you know this year to check out Risk. Okay, Wes Lambert asks, you mentioned that some subjects might be handled differently today than in the early days of risk. Did those changes in tone happen organically? Was it just cultural shifts? Or were there changes in how everyone at risk led people through their storytelling process? The answer is both. There have been times that risk listeners have written into us and said, you know, the way this person said this or that thing really strikes me as tone deaf now or um, insensitive or cruel on some level or just a bad idea to be putting out there. I am always open to engaging with that sort of feedback. Oftentimes, it stresses me out because oftentimes it's not written in a way that is respectful. You know, like someone will write in, you know, fuck you for doing this, yada, yada. And um, I'll be like, wow, okay. <laughs> you know, like, I, I will get defensive. I will get defensive when a person seems to be like, you fucked up. Shame on you, Kevin Allison. And I have literally had people write shame on you, which is very triggering for me because I wouldn't have created this show if I hadn't been terrorized by shame for most of my life. <laughs> and I can't believe this, but I just exemplified the evolution there because I was about to say crippled by shame. But I think somewhere along the line, someone did write into us that, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had used the word lame. I had used the word lame to describe how when I was a little child and I was terrorized by shame. My impression was that other kids thought being gay was quote-unquote lame. And someone pointed out to me, well, just like the words gay and fag haunted you as a child, people who have disabilities, people who can't walk, 
are haunted by people using the word lame in that way. And that made total sense to me. So I started changing the words for how I tell that particular story. When that part comes up, I really feel that so much of this evolving consciousness, there's so much value in it. We just got to remember that there's always another side to the coin. There's always a dark side. You know, any, anything good that's happening, someone will come in and make some bad out of it. So try to take the good and don't worry so much about the bad. You know, like uh, I have so many non-binary or even trans friends where I might fuck up their pronouns, you know, in conversation. But they're understanding and forgiving and gracious if you see an opportunity to let someone know they could be more mindful about the way they're saying something, you know, invite them, welcome them, do it in a, in a forgiving and understanding way. Don't call them out and shame them, you know, unless they're very clearly coming at you with bad faith. I mean, of course that's out there, but we have to try to give one another the benefit of the doubt until someone really crosses a line. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to watch over the years the way the people who tell stories on the show have taught me and the listeners have taught me. We re-release these old episodes, you know, from 2009 and such uh, on Thursdays sometimes. And there was one recently where a storyteller was talking about a group of kinksters in a very, very kink-shaming way. Well, <laughs> in 2009, I didn't know I was kinky. <laughs> you all got to see in 2011 how I came around all that. And so I'm embarrassed to admit it, but yeah, uh, when I listened to it, Today, I heard it with new ears and was like, whoa, <laughs> that, that is hurtful. You know, I, our empathy, our sense of compassion is a growing muscle. And, uh, you know, that's why we're here. So anyway, yes, we did edit that out of that old recording. We're okay with taking stories down or taking lines out of stories we want the storytellers to be unfiltered, to be as revealing as possible, to avoid sugarcoating, to talk with the sort of raw realness that they would talk to a close friend. And at the same time, the ultimate reason we're here is compassion. Hey, this is David Crabb. Um, I have been uh, performing and coaching and hosting Risk here in LA for uh, altogether like over 10 years now. Um, and I told a story in the show in an episode that came out shortly after the pandemic hit in April. And it's interesting because as someone who's worked in storytelling for years and coaches and directs and tell story myself, you know, a lot of times people talk about telling your story, they say from your scars, not your wounds, right? It's like this idea that you don't want to tell a story that's traumatic or upsetting when you're still in the middle of it, right? You need to get past it. You need to get 
you know, hindsight, because hindsight's 2020, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, it's not. Anyway, uh, it was interesting telling the story that I told this year because, you know, I'm an immunosuppressed person and my husband teaches piano. And when the pandemic hit, we realized really quickly that there's a good chance that, you know, my husband, after sharing piano keys with like 20 snot-nosed kids for two weeks, that he could very well have it. And because I am immunosuppressed, I just had to get out of the house because I'm on this drug called Remicade and I'm vulnerable. So I moved away from my husband and my dog, like my family, and I moved into this tiny studio apartment that a friend of mine uh, lives in down the way. She lives right across from that huge blue Scientology building that's in all the videos. Terrifying. And it was a really crazy time because the story was about being locked in this kind of prison, right? Because it, it did. It felt like a prison cell. And weirdly, I made it into kind of a nest. And that, and that's really what the story was about, like living and working and breathing and trying to stay sane in this little box. The way that so many of us were trying to do in our, our homes and bedrooms and offices, you know, how do I keep my body moving? How do I stay healthy? How do I not surrender to bad habits? And do you need a fourth whiskey? I mean, we all needed a fourth whiskey. But the story was basically about what it was like living in this in this pandemic, in this time, um, you know, and it was a profound experience because, you know, again, we talk about the idea of hindsight being, you know, 2020, like I I didn't realize that, you know, the night of the show is I'm like setting up my laptop, which I literally set up my laptop on like a stack of books on a box on a music stand, you know, it was like a leaning tower of Pisa in there. And I'm like trying to keep that up and trying to set up a mic you know, I'm doing all this work in this weird world about to tell this story about the place I'm trapped in. And it was so surreal and interesting. And I look back on it now with hindsight, you know, now I'm back with my family, my husband, my dog. And, you know, Risk has become a remote show for nine months, you know, and really kept it going. And so much of the world has adapted. And I mean, I wish the world could have adapted more and better. Obviously, I think we all do. But it's amazing to look back on this time and to think of, yeah, this idea of adaptation that, you know, there's all this strength that people have in them, right, Um, to rise up and meet a challenge. And I think about working with Risk and, like, talking to Kevin and Cindy and JC that night, like, getting my laptop in the right position and getting the curtain closed. And someone else was on the show and their laptop was weird, but they had, like, a mirror reflecting on the side of their face. You know, and we're all standing alone in our our little rooms, you know, drinking whiskey and trying to be together and being like, this is weird. And that thing that was so strange, it is the wrist show now. And I think that that's so amazing. And that night, you know, telling that story in that place, from that place, like from that wound, it's really one of the most amazing storytelling experiences I've, I've ever had. And it's dangerous to do that thing, right? When you tell a story in the middle of it because it's vulnerable. That's why we warn people about it, you know? But I think I needed to do it. And I know the other people on the show that night needed to do it. And, you know, right after the pandemic and and still sometimes, you know, Kevin has put a lot of like these little anecdotes, these interstitial bits where people tell these like really brief stories about what their lives are like in COVID time. And I think it's, it's so special and it's so necessary, right? As much as we have to look back at our past to tell the story of it, there's also something to be said when we're all sharing this crazy experience of doing it, of doing it right now. I think we all felt so lost in hearing a story from someone that could live halfway across the world or right next door that was going through what you were going on in their own specific way was so important. And I'm, I'm really thankful that Riz decided to do that and to not, you know, keep things evergreen, right? To pretend that it wasn't happening. 
I felt like the platform really embraced the moment we were in and we let people speak about what was meaningful for them in that moment. And, you know, it was great for me, you know, like coaching storytellers who are in similar places in their lives. It's amazing that this time has offered us this one special thing, right? If there's anything it's offered us, it's offered us this sense of what it means to really, truly be together with everyone and something like, I mean, that's, that's a moment. And I'm really glad that risk adapted to it. And it was so nice to have them along for this crazy ride with me. Now there's a lot more of questions, Q and a questions uh, that were sent to us over at the risk podcast fans discussion group. But I'll tell you what, we'll just answer those in a later Patreon check-in. You know, this has been probably the best year for Patreon bonus content as well. There's so much that's been happening over there that's phenomenal too. You know what? We'll drop another episode in a few months of Patreon picks. We did that this past year so that people who aren't members at Patreon can get a taste of what they're missing out on from over there. This episode that you're listening to right now is typical of a Patreon check-in. But one of the reasons I wanted to put this episode out for free was to kind of, you know, for the historical record, kind of plant a flag in the ground over the idea that, you know, we're used to referring to all year long 2020 as just being nothing but bad. But so much good came about all around risk, you know? I think we cried, <laughs> like tears of joy, tears of, you know, growth at every single live stream show. There was just so much revelation and so much emotion in those shows. And you know what? We did have to scale back on mine and everyone else's pay and everyone's hours. So we were a little hard pressed to do big, long radio style stories this year. But there were still a few unforgettable ones. John LaSala did some magical editing on Erica Bloomfield's masterpiece of a story about her bipolar disorder and how it led her to being homeless. John shared a clip of that one with us earlier. And then the story Heartbreak by Laura Ford about a tragically failed foster adoption process. It was a story where there were a lot of regrets. There were mistakes made by Laura and various other characters in the story. And man, the conversation that it started out there amongst the listeners was so passionate and multi-layered and challenging. And it was such a human moment when Laura wanted to come back and share about how she heard those reactions and was affected by those reactions and wanted to answer questions that came up. Because that's also a big part of the process of risk is sharing your story. Then you're bound to continue to have thoughts and feelings about how your story resonates in the world. We love checking back in with people sometimes. Like when Lily B came on the live stream and came out as asexual, it was such a revelation because, you know, Lily B had shared so many stories on risk in the past about <laughs> her struggles with sexual relationships. But 
certainly one of the biggest highlights of this year, and it was an ongoing highlight of this year. The movement for racial and economic justice this past year, you know, with Black Lives Matter leading the way after the murder of George Floyd, I mean, holy shit. Talk about a light shining in the darkness. You know, if so much of 2020 was the result of how fucked up this country can be, the movement was America at its best. I was so moved to be able to share about the Black Trans Lives Matter rally and march in Brooklyn this past summer. That was on an episode called Turnaround. And then we did our whole Black Lives series of reruns, but we were also so honored to have so many black folks share new stories with us on the podcast this year. And a whole bunch were totally brand new to the show. Sheila Arnold, Harold Cox, Angie Chapman, John McWhorter, Kai Choice, Andrea Coleman, Navaris Darson, Yasmin Hazib, DJ Crystal Clear, so many others who are longtime favorites of ours were on the show too. I remember how fascinating, how illuminating it was when Oz Dussoleil talked about how he'd always struggled with how to address or not to address racial themes in his stories. I've been doing storytelling shows for six years now. And why have I been reluctant to pitch a story that had race as its theme? First of all, it takes many hours to prepare a story to go back and dig up old details to think about how to phrase something, how to structure the story. And that is a lot of hours to think about something that can be as dark and painful and volatile as racism. And then I don't want to end up with a story that's wagging its finger at white people. I don't want a story that sounds like I'm speaking for all black people. I don't want to sound like a whining victim or a victim who's beckoning for a white savior. And another reason for my reluctance has been what public life has turned into with news media and social media where outrage is rewarded. I see things nuanced and I feel like it's important for me to acknowledge that I live a nice life. I can go places and do things that were not options for my parents. I can go places now that I could not go to myself in the 1980s. I'm glad that I no longer live in a time where co-workers could tell nigger jokes and if I complain, they accuse me of not having a sense of humor or, oh, they're just jokes. Those days are gone. But yes, racism persists. Ugly, fucked up shit happens and it needs to stop. But too often I've found myself in conversations, whether one on one or online, where acknowledging that I can have a nice life and racism exists. White and black people have questioned, am I delusional? Am I trying to say that racism is gone? And what's really painful is when another black person has dismissed me as a house nigger. 
And it's been really tough to have nuanced conversations when outrage gets the likes and shares. I'm reminded on a daily basis how much this community means to me. But when my father passed away and just the outpouring of love from everyone, everyone involved here was, uh, it, it really meant a lot to me. I, that was a real kind of, I don't know, I, I, I'm going to have to look back at it in the future to continue processing. But that moment when I, I was home in Ohio for my father's funeral and I went out into the woods and recorded on my iPhone a sort of remembrance of him. And, you know, I was, I was a little like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. There's birds and leaves rustling. But people loved it. People really loved it. And everything people expressed to me was very, very meaningful to me. That will be a moment that I definitely have to check in about later, you know, in therapy and stuff like that. I mean, this year, <laughs> there's a lot of this year that I think a lot of us are like, yeah, yeah, put a pin in that because <laughs> I'm not done. Uh, um, sifting through all my thoughts and feelings about that. And then to cap it all off, it was such a thrill that we were able to do, you know, our our annual Halloween, our scary stories episode and our holiday stories episode that always pops up on the week of Christmas. Those episodes are in the history of risk. They're always like they have so many bells and whistles. They're kind of epic things. And, and I was so proud that we pulled them off so beautifully this year, in spite of everything. I was like, okay, these, we're, we are going to pull out all the stops. And we did. And I was really happy with, with how it turned out. And I'm really happy with how this episode turned out. Uh, you know, John LaSala said, maybe you should do this every year, you know, instead of a Patreon check-in, do a check-in for everyone on the free podcast feed of like a state of the union, you know, the state of risk. How do they always do? The state of risk is strong. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, oh, that's another thing. We will have another person delivering that speech this year. Thank Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu and Muhammad <laughs> thank everything <laughs> for that at least so here we are you are hearing this in 2021 I am recording this on New Year's Eve and uh, I'm very glad to be here with you guys on this particular New Year's Eve and let's all have a better year but with just as many blessings and even bigger ones than we're cherishing the memories of right now.
That is all for this week's episode. This is Sarah Klang behind me now. Well, I'll tell you, this was a super improvised episode, guys. I mean, this was, we did not map it out. We didn't uh, pre-plan any of it. I mean, you can kind of tell that in the way that, you know, some people are repeating things that other people said and all that sort of thing. I realized during the editing process that I had started to bring up my romance and sex life collapsing early in the story and then forgot to finish that. That is exactly why I'm thinking it might be really, I don't know, good for my health to start an audio journaling and conversations podcast to like dig into some of those things that obsess me, but might not necessarily be, you know, narratives with a beginning, middle and end sort of thing. Like the phenomena of someone building 50 years of an identity around being sexual and romantic, a kink educator, a uh, someone who helps bring people together in sex and in my 50th year suddenly finding myself without any sex or any romance or any signs that I'll ever have that again. That's <laughs> the kind of thing I think might be interesting to unpack. So like I was saying before, we would be very curious to hear your guys' reaction to the episode today. Look us up on our socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Risk Show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison. Check out the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. You can also check out our subreddit, Risk Podcast. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Where do I put it? Here! Where do I put it? Put the clip here!